Y'all, let's hear it one more time. We are, we are um, praising God for what he is doing here. This is an important season in the life of our church, and I'm just thankful for what the Lord is doing. And I know you don't need me to put a, you know, exclamation point on that after what you've just heard. I have one more uh, quick announcement. Um, and so for, for this, I'm going to need uh, Kelsey Meadows, Melanie Taylor, Tony Hooper, um, and uh, Dr. Ebony. And uh, I won't have to ask Marcy because Marcy was going to do our, um, our uh, testimony today. And, and she went home sick just, just today. So we want to be praying for them, praying for their family. Um, so she won't have to do this. But all the rest of y'all are going to have to put your hands over your ears. If I called your name, would you put your hands over your ears for just a moment? Those that are sitting next to those, Kelsey, Melanie, Tony, and Marcy, and I'm sorry, Dr. Ebony, make sure your hands are over your ears. Now, they can't hear me. They can't hear me at all. They can't hear anything that I'm saying right now. It's absolutely silent where they are, but you guys can hear me. They have no idea that I'm telling you that next Sunday is Staff Appreciation Sunday, okay? They have no idea that I, they have none whatsoever, any idea. It's not on the calendar. We haven't talked about this in staff meeting before. This is absolutely unknown to them that next week we get to, as a church family, appreciate the staff who makes, I'm telling you, the God's honest truth, makes it all happen around here. So I am personally coming to you, and I'm personally uh, inviting you. I'm exhorting you. What's another word that I can use? Begging you whatever it is that you need to hear. Start thinking right now how you can bless, bless Kelsey, Melanie, Tony, Marcy, and Ebony Taylor, okay? Please, y'all with me? They can't hear you. You can say yes. All right. Thank you. Now, since y'all can't hear me, I know you can go ahead and take your ears out. How did you know to do that? How could you do that when you didn't hear me at all and you had no idea what I was saying? It's amazing. The Lord's at work. The Lord is at work. That's all I know. Are we all good? We're in agreement? If you agree, say amen. All right. Y'all, we are spending this spring considering the importance of identity both as individuals and as a church. The question we are asking this spring is, who am I? First of all, that was the thrust of our sermon series um, that we just finished up. But now we are turning ourselves to this question, who are we? And we began last week to unpack this question with a sermon series titled, We Are City. We are city. And in this series, we're asking about our corporate identity as a church, how each of us fit individually into this bigger picture of who we are as a people of God. If you're visiting here among us, and I noticed there was many visitors here today, I want to welcome you, first of all. Um, and you're here at a perfect time. And I want you to keep coming back because you're going to get a real good idea of what we're about in this, in this, uh, this season of our life. God has called us together here for a purpose. He has not called a random set of individuals together. He has brought us together for a time such as this. 
And as we said last week, there are many others who are not here yet, whom he has called as well. And the time is now for us to turn our energies and our creativity outward now and, and, and make ourselves ready to receive all those who God is yet to bring here among us to participate in this mission that he's put us on together. We are city. We are city. And we are here for a purpose. And this is why the question of identity is so important because identity is related. It's connected to purpose. And for created things, identity is found in fulfilling the purpose of the creation. All this truth resonates deeply. Personally, I've never been able to muster the faith that is necessary for atheism. And here's the reason. Because uncreated things have no purpose. Uncreated things have no purpose. It's just a... Uh, if we have no creator, if our existence is just the random, is, is, is the result of random cosmic accidents, then we have no purpose. But if we are created things, and I think we all know that we are quickened by purpose. If we are created things, then we are created for a purpose. We are here for a reason. And indeed, when a created thing fulfills its created purpose, what ensues, what comes out, what overflows is beautiful. Amen? We know this because our creator has made us in his image, and therefore we are creators ourselves. And when we, uh, uh, when we have created something, it fulfills the purpose, and it fulfills the purpose for which we have created it. That's a thing of beauty. You know, you all know that I went to school uh, to, to study art. I became an art teacher. I was a, dr a drawer and a painter, but I was always kind of envious of the potters. Okay, because the potters would make things that were useful and beautiful. Now, I do think paintings and drawings are useful, just not in the same way, not in that everyday kind of life. I had a painting professor that said that sculpture is what you bump into when you're trying to look at paintings. But I would say that a little differently. I would say there's something really magical, and there's... You know, there's sculpture and then there's pottery. There's this sense of making something that's meant to pour water into a chalice. It's meant to do something. And for that thing, that object, that implement to be a beautiful thing, that tells us a lot about who we are as people, right? Y'all all look really good today. You look really nice. Now, I appreciate you covering up your nakedness. Okay? But you didn't have to look this nice, did you? You didn't have to get your colors all coordinated. You didn't have to look so, you know, you didn't have to think about it and how things go together and stuff like that. That's just what people do, right? We don't just make things functionally. We make functional things beautiful. So pottery is one of those things. Fast cars are one of those things. Cool sneakers are one of those things. Hats are one of those things. When a created thing fulfills its created purpose, 
there's an instinct in us to recognize its beauty and to even emphasize that beauty. This isn't just us showing off. At the end of the day, I think it's us subconsciously magnifying a cosmic truth. And that cosmic truth is a created thing fulfilling its created purpose is a thing of beauty. And here's why. When a created thing fulfills its created purpose, the created thing is satisfied and its creator is glorified. By the same token, when a created thing, on the other hand, is used outside of its intended created purpose, what ensues is not beauty, but tragedy. A beautiful chalice makes a great chalice, but it makes a terrible hammer. Not only will the nail remain undriven, but the chalice will be shattered to pieces. Beautiful clothes can be used to shame those who cannot afford them as much as they can be used to glorify the ones who made them, right? They can curse just as easily as they can bless if they are used outside of their purpose. Are you all following with me? Pharmaceuticals are another example. The same pill that saves one life can destroy another life. It all depends on how that pill is used, if it's used according to its purpose. If so, then it's a gift. If not, it can be a curse. The reality is at the heart of the story of mankind is, is this, that God created us good. He created us good, and he created us for his glory, to shine forth his glory like beautiful sunbeams, powerful sunbeams emanating from the sun, extending his glory out into the world. But we determined to use those gifts that he gave us outside of their created purposes. In fact, the very gift of life itself we determined in our sin to use outside of, of, of his created purpose, not to glorify him, but to glorify ourselves. And in so doing, tragedy ensued, and we call that tragedy the fall. And as we consider, and it, and, it, and it twisted up all of creation, the Bible tells us that all of creation groans under the weight of our sin. So all the beautiful things that God has made were affected by this, and we began to use the earth itself as a, uh, uh, in a tragic way. And now the weather's all crazy, y'all. And that what happens when you use a beautiful thing the way it's not intended to be used, tragedy ensues. What God meant as an instrument of beauty is now an instrument of tragedy all around the world. This is the weight of the fall. And as we consider the purpose for which our little church exists, we have to recognize a reality. The community, this community that we call church is a gift from God. It's a gift. But if that gift operates outside of its purpose, then that gift, even the gift of community, of church, can bring about tragedy in people's lives. And I know all, probably all of us are connected in some way where the gift of, 
of Christian community has been used as a weapon to hurt. What God meant as an instrument of healing in people's lives can be a source of pain. So this is at the heart of what we're going to be talking about today as we continue in uh, just the second. Last week, I just kind of opened up uh, with a discussion of why we use the word city, what, what the word city means in our name. That we are hopefully going to be a beacon of the city that is to come, right? That would not be the first. That would not be the first, y'all. One time we were having a wedding up in here, and a guy in an alligator suit walked right down that window right there. As hard as a bicycle that's making a motorcycle sound is to get y'all back from, a guy in an alligator suit is even more. So, <clears throat> so y'all can do it. You can stay with me. You can do it. I have evidence, anecdotal though it may be. All right. Uh, if you are willing and able, <laughs> would you uh, turn with me uh, to Mark chapter 11? In this passage, we're going to find Jesus walking into a tragedy. We're going to find him walking into a place that God had created to be a blessing, but human beings had turned into a tragedy. And Jesus' response to that, is strong. To put it bluntly, he's angry. But even in his anger, he teaches us, he gives us a vision of the beauty that God intended to be on display when his people are fellowshipping together. And it's an antidote to the tragedy that it often can become in our sins. So if you're willing and able, would you stand with me as I read from Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. Chapter 11. I'm going to begin reading in verse 15. We'll be focusing our attention on verses 17. Beginning in verse 15. Hear the word of the Lord. It says, On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those who were selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said... Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Now, I love how this text goes on to say that Jesus is teaching in this scene. He's teaching as he overturns tables. He's teaching as he overturns benches. He's teaching as, I don't know if you noticed this, but people are carrying things through the temple and he's going up to their hands and, and knocking stuff out of their hands. And he's teaching them. He's teaching them. That gives me a lot of leeway, I feel like. <laughs> Watch out. Watch out. Uh, and what he is teaching against is what the temple has become in the hands of human beings. What God has intended to be a place of worship, what God has intended to be a place of unity, humans have turned into a place of commerce and a place of division. This is a charge, sadly. I, I think it would, be, it would be foolish of us to, to act like this isn't a charge that could be levied at the church today. Would you agree? That we can tend to turn the house of the Lord into a house that is focused 
on commerce and a house that is focused on division. Are y'all with me? I'm not trying to cast dispersions on anybody. We're as apt to it as, anybody, as anyone is. But that's what Jesus is teaching against. And since this is a charge that we could stand underneath as a church with a big C, I think we need to pay attention to what Jesus is teaching here. Amen? Now, we have taught before about the connection between the temple in the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament. There are similarities. There are differences. There's a line that draws between them. There's an arrow pointing from one to the other. We won't have time to go into all of that again today. But to make a long and wonderful story short, let's consider the words of 1 Peter 2.5, where it says that you, you believers in Jesus, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. That is to say, a temple to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Praise be to God. So what Jesus has done is made us into his temple. So no longer we have just one temple in Jerusalem, but instead the temple of God is wherever his people are gathered. This means that the temple is this. Uh, uh, it's, it's us. And it can be anywhere around the world with a small number of people or a large number of people. Whether two or three are gathered, he is there among them. That is church. That is temple. Here's why. Because the, the defining feature of temple is the presence of Almighty God. And he is present in all of us by his spirit. Amen? That who are believers in Jesus, who have come to make spiritual sacrifices through Jesus. So what Jesus has done is make us into that temple. So when Jesus walks into this temple in Mark 11, it's right for us to take heart, take to heart his reactions. It is safe for us to wonder today, what would happen if he walked into our church today? What would happen if he walked into our churches today, any one of our churches today in the family? I wonder, I wonder, would he start turning over tables? Would he start knocking things out of our hands as we tried to carry on our little religious business? It is right for us to take to heart and to let them, these words search us. Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers? You understand, don't you, that in this statement, Jesus is showing us our purpose. He's showing us our identity. He's showing us in both positive and negative language what a church is supposed to be, its created purpose. This is what we are to build at City Fellowship. It's what every church is meant to build. Ours is not a unique calling in this way. Here's how we have chosen to phrase this calling. We are building a multi-ethnic family of faith on mission with King Jesus. Over the next few sermons, we're going to see how this statement of purpose squares with what Jesus declared in the temple that day, where he said, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The only slide that will be up here today is this. How do these compare? This will be up here as we walk through. Now, I tried to take, you know, you can kind of sense that there's three parts to, our, to this statement that we have. There, there's the, 
the multi-ethnic part, there's the family part, there's the mission part, and I tried to think, okay, we can do a sermon on each one of those, and then I found as I started trying to work on these that you cannot take these apart, at least in what Jesus says, there he is again, y'all. Wasn't done, there's more to do. Gotta go get his buddy with the alligator suit. They're gonna come by here in a minute, I just feel it. All right. Uh, where was I? <laughs> we'll see how far we get today. We'll see how far we get today. But I, I think what we're going to save for next week is that mission with King Jesus. What I could absolutely not tear apart in good conscience biblically was this idea of the family of faith being multi-ethnic. I found that there's not a place in the Bible where it talks about the family of faith outside of the context of multi-ethnicity that I could find. So let's just begin here in comparing these and see how the way we phrase this, how does it meet what Jesus says the church is supposed to be? First of all, let's just start with his phrase and say this. Recognize this. Jesus says that the gathering of his people is to function like a family, right? This is why he used the term house. The term house is a very large metaphor throughout all of Scripture. The family metaphor for the people of God is a strong metaphor throughout all of Scripture. There are other metaphors and ones that are used quite often, like kingdom, like city, like even army of God. But these other metaphors are never to take away from the understanding that we are the household of God. So if we are a kingdom, we need to understand that we are a citizenry that relates to one another as family. We don't relate to each other as citizens in a city as we understand it. We are to understand that we are citizens of the city that is to come that relate to one another as a family. If we are an army of God, then we are soldiers that do not relate to each other as soldiers first, but as family first. So these other metaphors are used to describe what the people of God are, but all of them, need, we need to import and see through the filter that we relate to one another and we relate to one another, to God, as a family. However else we understand the church, we have to understand that first. Now I've noticed that this language of family has become pretty common pretty much everywhere these days. It's a part of kind of the tribalization, the kind of internet commerce uh, idea that we have um, going on. So I shop at Kroger mostly, so we get mailers addressed to the Kroger family sometimes. Um, I don't know how I feel about a, the Kroger family. I don't know. I, I, I don't go in Kroger and think, man, I just, when you're here, you're family. You know, it's like... Olive Garden up in here, right? Um, Jesus wants to make clear, we're not just building any family, right? We're not called to build just any house. We are called to build a house of prayer. And by this same token, we're not just building any family. We are building a family of faith at City Fellowship. It's important that we go further than recognizing that we are just brothers and sisters, we must also acknowledge that God is our Father. So the book of Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, they all speak to our adoption. 
The metaphor of adoption is used to talk about how we are brought into the household of God in Jesus Christ. When we come to Christ, we are given a new name. We're given a new identity. In fact, to the good or the ill, our family, our earthly families, our temporal families are intended to serve as pointers to our eternal home in the family of God. Now, for some of you, that those families have served as positive models for how families are to operate. For others of you, they have not served this purpose. So when it comes to your family of origin, the gift that God intended, it may be in your life that the gift that, or what God intended to be a gift in your life, your temporal and blood family may not have been, it might have been twisted in the hands of people into being a tragedy. Something that hurt you instead of helped you. But I want you to hear, if that's the case for you, what the pastor and author, Pete Scazzaro, uh, uh, author of Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, has to say about this. He says, the great news of Christianity is that your family of origin does not determine your future. God does. What has gone before you is not your destiny. The most significant language in the New Testament for becoming a Christian is adoption into the family of God. It is a radical new beginning. When we place our faith in Christ, we are spiritually reborn by the Holy Spirit into the family of Jesus. Are y'all with me? Are you with Pete? If you're not with me, be with Pete. Okay? We are transferred out of darkness into the kingdom of light. The Apostle Paul uses the image of Roman adoption to communicate this profound truth, emphasizing that we are now in a new and permanent relationship with a new father. God becomes our father. Our debts or our sins are canceled in Christ. We are given a new name, Christian, in Christ. A new inheritance, which is freedom, hope, glory, the resources of heaven itself, and new brothers and sisters in your fellow Christians. Jesus' mother's and brothers, um, not mothers, mother, and brothers arrived at a house where Jesus was teaching once and looked for him to come outside. But Jesus replied to the crowd inside at the house, sitting in his feet. He said, who are my mother and my brothers? And then he looked at the circle seated around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. The church for the believer in the mouth of Jesus there is now the first family. Now let me be clear. Here at City, we are always going to teach the importance of honoring your family, of honoring your culture, of honoring your history. But make no mistake, Jesus is calling us to seek first his kingdom, his household, and his righteousness. And if we do that, then all these things will be added unto us. The only shot we have of loving and honoring our, 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 our families of origin, our cultures, our histories, is by seeking first the new family of God, the first family. So far, with our discussion of family here, I don't think that we'd run into a lot of disagreement with just about any other church and we have to be a family of faith. You hear that all the time. You hear that all the time when you go to church. We're brothers and sisters under God. That was the, that's the word you used at the church I was growing up was brother. Everybody was brother or sister, right? Everybody. I like that. But 
That's not where Jesus stops. He gets specific. Uh, he gets specific about how he has opinions about how that family is supposed to look, how that family is supposed to operate. He says, and let me just remind you of this, this is my house. <laughs> when he goes, he says, this is my house. This is not your house. It doesn't get to look like you want it to look. It doesn't get to operate the way you want it to operate. It, it doesn't get to operate the way that feels comfortable or even most natural to you. Okay? This is my house, said Jesus. In fact, let me pull out a theological word so y'all will think at least that I'm smart. This is prolegomena. To everything that we have to say today, this is my house. Is this his house? Yeah. We want this in our hearts to be his house. This is his house. He is the lead pastor of this church. He is our father, and we are his children. We are his brothers, and we are brothers and sisters under his fatherhood, right? We want this to be his house. And that's what Jesus says, this is my house. So we need to let go of the things that we, when we want to turn it into our house and remember that it's his house. And he says that his house will be called a house for all nations. Now, as we've said here often, this word translated nations here is ethnos in the Greek. It's where we get the word ethnic in English. So Jesus is not speaking here of countries. He's speaking of peoples, people groups. Ethnicity is a much richer term than nationality. There are many different ethnic groups within any single nation state. They may be tied together by things like race and language, food, traditions, common histories. Jesus is speaking of peoples who identify with one another because of their shared culture, not their shared nationalities. Y'all understand what I'm saying? Maybe. Don't need to say it again? Oh, I say all this because I notice that sometimes churches put flags up all over their churches, right? from all over, countries all over the world, and that's a good thing to remind ourselves that Jesus has told us to go out into all the world and preach and to baptize those that come to him in the name of Christ. Amen? But I do think that while Jesus wants his message to obviously go out into all the nations of the world, here he's speaking of all the peoples in your neighborhood. All the peoples that are around you, and surely you will find those peoples if you go elsewhere. But I find that we are sometimes much more comfortable going out there than we are going over here, right? We're sometimes much more comfortable. The common feature of his family is not earthly blood or culture or language. It is the spirit of living God dwelling within one. And so the Apostle John says it this way, Yet to all who did receive him, to all those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. 
So we have chosen to use this term multi-ethnic in our description of the family of faith that we are building because that's the word that Jesus uses. Most people think race when you say ethnic, and it certainly includes that, but that's only part of what I think Jesus means. So to really give you a full sense of this term nations, of this term ethnos in the biblical sense, uh, I want to point out to you something that you probably already took note of. And that's here in Luke, I'm sorry, Mark 11. Jesus is quoting, isn't he? Did you all notice that? How does he begin? Is it not written? And probably in your Bible there's quotes around it, right? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. So let's see where this is written. Keep your finger here and let's turn to Isaiah, book of Isaiah. Chapter 56. Chapter 56. And let's read, let's let's put this in context. This is the passage that Jesus is quoting from. Let's put this in context and go up to verse 3. In Isaiah 56, 3, where it says this. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, or think or feel, that the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. Let no eunuch complain and say, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name, and that will, uh, is a name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servant, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and, and, and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain, and I will give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. I want to point out here there are two groups mentioned specifically, and I think they're representative of even more, and that is foreigners and eunuchs. Now, when we use words like all nations or multi-ethnic, we think of something that goes along with this analogy of foreigner more easily. We think of Jesus coming into our hearts and breaking down the barriers that divide us racially, culturally. That's kind of what we think of. Let me be clear here that we certainly mean that. When we speak of our calling to multi-ethnic ministry, we certainly mean that. But there's another nation that's listed here, isn't it? And that is eunuchs. To put it the most simply, and the closest analogy for our day, is these are folks who will not be marrying and having blood family of their own. This is not a one-to-one analogy, but it's fair here for us to think of single folks. Now, it's saying that this is a nation. This is a people group. This is an ethnos. And I have to think, 
Kelsey Meadows for opening my eyes to something that I think is really, I mean, some years ago, really true. And you only have to go to the Christian bookstores and browse for a little bit to note this, that we kind of have something teetering on an idolatry to marriage and family in the church. To the point where we almost tend to think that folks that don't get married, there's something wrong with you. In spite of the fact that the guy who wrote most of the New Testament was single and never got married. Despite the fact that the guy that died on the cross for our sins was single and never got married. And I know preachers, God bless them, that are single. Lord, everybody's got somebody to set them up with, right? Because this just can't happen. And so in that environment, we can tend to draw lines. We don't notice because family is a big metaphor for us. So we think in terms of our own kids and our own marriages and relationships and all that sort of stuff. But what this whole thing that Jesus is saying is, is that as those lines get drawn, whether we mean to draw them or not, there are people who are not being invited into the family. So Jesus has said, God has said, I will give them a name that is better than sons and daughters. I will give them an enduring name. I will give them a family. And that family will endure. They have a name that is everlasting, just like anyone else has a name that is everlasting, and it's the same name. They have a name that will endure forever, just like everyone else that's in the body of Christ has a name that will endure forever, and it's the same name. The banner over the family is love. The banner waves Jesus over all of us. We are family in Christ. I wonder, does everyone feel like they have a family here? A first family. Remember, first family. Jesus says we're family in Christ. I wonder if this is an area where Jesus might turn over some tables among us. Are there dividing lines in our family? Are there barriers to fellowship that maybe we can't see? What about economics? What about education level? What about age? What about gender? Jesus quotes from this passage to make sure that we understand what exactly he means by all nations. He knows that walls of division can spring up among us for any number of reasons. Blind spots, ignorance, and outright prejudice can separate the family. Jesus came into the temple that day and began turning over tables, not because he lost his temper, right? Not because y'all just made me mad. Y'all understand that nobody can make you mad. If anybody was mentally tough, it was Jesus, right? Heard somebody talking about this. We tend to think of mentally tough people. We put it in sports, and we say that person that drags themselves across the finish line, that person that takes it on the chin and keeps coming back for more, mentally tough. And this guy was saying, no, that's not. That's physically tough. A mentally tough person is somebody that can come up and get cussed out, and they're not going to get flapped, Right? A mentally tough some, a person is somebody who can be led like a lamb to the slaughter. 
and never say a mumbling word, as the old song says. That's a mentally tough person. I think Jesus is a good example of mental toughness. He didn't lose his temper. And in the, in the, in, he was trying to disrupt patterns. Long-standing patterns. Long-standing patterns. And when, sta- and when patterns are long-standing, they have to be disrupted. And the longer they've been standing, the more it's going to be awkward and weird. And I'm sure it was weird and awkward that day for Jesus to be running around knocking stuff out of people's hands to disrupt. His point is this. Well, in fact, let me just back up and say, let's, let's talk, in fact, let's turn back to Luke and let's just put this in context a little bit. We're ahead of the game. I'm sorry, Mark. Did I say Luke? Mark. Mark chapter 11, back to where we started. You'll notice that we read where it says... Um, that who he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise to the temple. So who are the money changers? These are people who, as folks are coming from all over uh, you know, the, the Jewish world, they're coming to make sacrifices. They're coming to pay for small sacrifices. They can't bring all those with them a lot of times. And so they're going to pay for them when they get to the temple. So in the temple, there are people that are selling doves, that are selling small animals, selling goats, whatever it is that you, if you're a richer person, you can use a goat. You can afford that. If you're a poor person, you can get two turtle doves. It's all those, that that kind of thing. Um, And those animals are there. There's all the noise that comes with them. There's all the ruckus that goes with that. But there's also money changers because you're bringing money from another part of uh, the the kingdom and you need money to change that money in order to go over here and buy your sacrifice. So these are the money changers. These are the people who have the benches of animals. That's what's going on. It's very true. This is commerce. It's unsightly. It's very true. This is disruptive, and it's caught in the big ruckus in the temple. And, and when I was growing up, that's what people focused in on. And when he talks about den of robbers, we're going to get that to, to that next time a little bit more and unpack that a little bit more because he quotes from a different passage when he says, you have made this into a den of robbers. And it's a very eye-opening passage, and it gets to this idea of the mission of Christ. So you're all going to have to come back for that. Okay? You're going to have to come back for that one. We're not going to make it to there today. But that's what people focused on. It was unsightly. It was disruptive in the house of God. You've, you've, you've disrupted worship. You've disrupted the house of God. And that's true. I'm not saying it's not true. I'm not saying that carrying on commerce in the temple wasn't a problem with Jesus. But I believe that the context and, and, the, and where he quotes from in the Old Testament tells us that he is much more upset about where this commerce is taking place than that it's taking place. Because in a lot of ways, what people are doing is providing a service to folks that are coming in order to worship. But where are these, these, where, where are these places of commerce set up? Well, to understand why this is offensive to Jesus, and we've talked about this before, but just to make sure that we're all together on the same page here, you need to understand the temple that Jesus is standing in is divided into courts, right? People have to come through one court to get to another court. The first court that you come to and the biggest court is the court of the Gentiles. These are people who are not 
uh, of the bloodline of Abraham, right? But there are people who want to worship the Lord. They're God-fearers, but they are looked down upon mightily by the Jews who have come to worship. They are the, the chosen people of God. Those Jews have to walk through the temple of the Gentiles. If they pick up their, their um, sacrifices and go on, that's what Jesus is knocking out of their hands as they go past their Gentile brothers and sisters through a door on the other side of a wall that separates them from their Gentile worshipers that are like them in all ways except for their ethnicity and their race. The money changers aren't carrying on their commerce in the next temples or the next uh, courts over. They're, they're doing it in a place where it doesn't really matter, where the Gentiles come and worship. So it's saying something about the Gentiles. Now, what's on the other side of that wall? That's the court of the Jewish women. If you're a Jewish woman, you have to stop there. You can make it through the Gentile court, but you can't go any further than the next one up. If you're a Jewish man, you can go to the next one. You're getting closer and closer to what? To the Holy of Holies, where God is. If you're a Jewish man, you can go past the Jewish women court. If you're not a priest, you have to stop there. If you're a priest, you get to go to the last court. It's right up next to the Holy of Holies. If you're a high priest, you go into the Holy of Holies. So there's a series of dividing lines that separate out the temple into courts. So I think here is what Jesus' point is as he turns over tables, as he's disrupting the situation. And it's another reason why I don't think that his main problem is that you're disrupting worship because what's he doing? Disrupting worship, right? He's turning over those, those money changers' tables. He's turning over those cages of birds and animals. Why? He's making a point, and that's that Gentiles are not second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. And as they walk through to the other courts beyond, and he's knocking out their sacrifices from their hand, what is he saying? He's saying women are not second-class citizens in the household of God. He's saying what we read about in Isaiah, that eunuchs have the same name over them as all of y'all. He's saying that the old and the young and the slave and the free have the same name over them as all of y'all. Prophetically, Jesus is announcing what he is going to bring about. Remember, he gets in a lot of trouble for saying that this temple will fall, but in three days I'll build it back again because he's rising up after going to the cross. And he's going to rebuild that temple, and those who believe in him are the new temple. And there will be no dividing lines in that temple. There will be no dividing lines in that temple. Y'all, there will be no dividing lines in that temple. That's what Jesus came to accomplish. So he's turning over tables to get everybody's attention because these are long-standing prejudices. These are long-standing traditions. These are long-standing blind spots. These are long-standing prejudices. And so he has to do something dramatic. Turns over some tables so he can say, you're all family. 
He's not doing it to be ugly. He's not doing it to be mean. He's not doing it to stick it to anybody. He's doing this. He's doing it to say, listen to me. Listen to me. Your family. Your family. Your family. Stop doing those things. Stop doing those things that don't make people feel like they're family. Change what you're doing. Change what you're doing. Knock down that wall. Your family. Your family. He's not trying to stick it to anybody. He's trying to invite them into something better. You're all family. God is your father. This is his house. And he sent me to tell you that he has made all these groups one, and he has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile all y'all to each other, to God, through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and he preached peace. That's what Jesus was doing in the temple that day. He was not sticking it to anybody. He was preaching peace. He was turning over tables in peace (laughs) to create peace, to create love, to create unity. He preached peace to those who were far away in the outer courts and to those who were near in the inner courts. For through him we all have access to the Father in one spirit. This is what he's saying prophetically. Consequently, none of y'all who are in Christ are foreigners and strangers anymore. Are y'all hearing me? You're not foreigners and strangers anymore, but you are fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. This is Ephesians 2, if you haven't noticed yet. Members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple to the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together and becoming a dwelling in which God lives. God lives. God lives by his spirit here among us. Brothers and sisters, our calling as a church is to be a family, a family, a first family, a family of faith, and, 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 and a family that bridges racial, cultural, economic, age, gender lines. A family that is marked by unity in the spirit, diversity in experience, diversity in culture. That is the kind of family we are called to build. And next time, we get to talk more about what it means that we join Christ in opening up and inviting more and more people to that family table. But for now, I want to end by us going to the Lord and asking him, Individually, are there tables in my heart that need to be overturned today? Are there practices in my experience? Are there thoughts in my mind? Are there, is there a blind spot, Lord? Shine a light. Turn over the table. We need to go to the Lord and ask him that. Because we're about to go to the, table of communion together. Communion. Community. Union. This is where we celebrate that we are one together in Christ. 
And that is the new temple in which there are no dividing lines. But we are brothers and sisters, and he is our father. So I wonder if Jesus, if he were to come in here today, would that table remain unturned? I pray it would. I think it would. I, I know, y'all, I know the, 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 the hunger in your heart. We need to consistently be returning here and asking ourselves, is there a table that needs turning over in me? Is there something I need to let go of? Is there something in my family of origin that I need to make peace with, something in my past that I need to make peace with so that I can become a, a faithful and a healthy part of the new family in Christ? Is there some work I need to do? Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm open before you. If I could get our musicians and our singers to come up, if I could get our servers and our ushers to come into place. Every Sunday we come together because Jesus has told us in his word that when you get together, do these things in remembrance of me. And he gave us communion. He gave us bread, and he broke that bread on the night that he was arrested. And as he passed that bread around, he, he, he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take of it and eat in remembrance of me, in remembrance of what I'm about to do. You don't see that too often, where someone says, before something happens, do this to remember something that's about to take place. And so we can understand that he said that for our benefit, brothers and sisters, that we would remember what he did, that we would remember his sacrifice, that we would remember that he died, his body was broken, so that we might be healed, so that our divisions might be healed, so that there might be reconciliation among us. No one said, least of all Jesus, that what he is asking of the church is easy. He said that you're going to have to go back and mess with some stuff you don't want to mess with in order to move forward. You're going to have to do that as individuals. You're going to have to do that as a people. And you're going to be leaders. This is God's intention. I'm convinced that we're supposed to be leading our communities and even our nations in going back, acknowledging the wrongs that have been done so that reconciliation can happen. Not acting like it didn't happen. We need to be leaders in that, but we're followers in the church. He gives us this drink. He said, this is my blood that's poured out for you. So that you don't have to bleed. You don't have to die. You don't have to die in your sin. We remember that he did this so that we could be family together. Isn't that, a great, isn't, that a, isn't that an amazing thing? So you'll be dismissed by the ushers. And when that happens, if you're a follower of Jesus, I want you to come forward and take that bread, dip it in the juice, and remind yourself that Jesus died. And as hard as this can be, as hard it is as it can be to walk this road, Jesus said it can be done by his power. In his spirit, it can be done. Not in our power, but his. And just renew your energy. Because that's what food does. 
That's what drink does. It renews your energy for the work that Jesus has put before us. It's a blessed work. Jesus is inviting us into it. If you need to come down and get some things handled before you go to the table, if there's a table that God has revealed in your heart that needs to be turned over and you need to come down and lay that table down, turn it over yourself, come and do that. We'll pray with you. We'll pray with you. And then take the, the communion if you need to at that point. If you're not a believer in Jesus, I want to invite you to come down and let's talk. Let's talk about Jesus. Stay afterwards. Let's talk. Talk to the person that you came with. Talk to them about Jesus. Don't let this time go by without knowing Christ who came, who came as a peacemaker, who came to build a family of faith, who came to build a house of prayer for all nations. Let's go to the Lord there.